Jones, Australia's leading voice. And thanks for your company. I know what you're thinking. I'm not Alan Jones. Yes, Alan had some commitments in Queensland to attend to. So for tonight and tomorrow night, you've got me, Fred Paul. I'm excited to be here on ADH TV. We are a streaming service dedicated to strong opinions and giving you common sense news analysis. We aren't woke. And we aren't pampering to the left-wing crazies out there who are fixated on symbolism, virtue signalling and destroying the Australian way of life. We exist for the quiet Australians, the hard-working Australians, those who are patriotic and care about our country. It's easy to watch ADH TV. Go to the App Store on your Apple TV or the Google Play Store, depending on what television you have, and search for ADH TV to start watching. It's all there, live and on demand. You'll be able to watch the Fred Paul Show starting Monday, August 1, Monday to Thursday, 9pm. Well, a big show tonight. As Alan each does each Wednesday, we will cross to London to speak to the political editor of The Express Online, David Maddox. Britain is experiencing its hottest day ever. The temperature has passed 40 degrees and London's fire commissioner is calling for a ban on all barbecues as wildfires are, wildfires are breaking out across London, can you believe? There was even one near David's home in London and we've got a photo of that to show you later. Professor David Flint will join me in the ADH studios as well to discuss the folly behind this radical climate change agenda. Whether you believe in it or not, the so-called fix is going to send us broke and leave us leave households in the dark. Politicians talking decarbonisation and the green transition are sending Aussie jobs offshore, making electricity bills soar and are signing us up for power shortages. All for what? China has over a thousand coal-fired power plants and hundreds more planned and approved. So why is our government intent on impoverishing our own? What's the agenda here? I'll speak to Professor David Flint about that shortly. So let's get the show on the road. I'm Fred Paul, filling in for Alan Jones. Well, in sporting parlance, Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong played an absolute blinder at the Pacific Island Forum in Fiji last week. The last time these Pacific leaders got together was in 2019 with former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. They were upset that Morrison didn't come with an open checkbook to pay for the destruction their islands were supposedly suffering as a result of climate change. China has since been taking advantage of this slight reduction in Australia's favour in the region, steadily ingratiating its way into the region at Australia's strategic expense. But this time around, Wong and Albanese arrived at the Pacific Islands Forum with a solid plan to renew friendships. And there's no better way for a country like Australia to make friends in the Pacific than to admit that its fully industrialised economy is raising the level of the ocean and swamping these Pacific islands out of existence. And it worked. Albanese was delighted with how smoothly the forum went, saying last Thursday that, quote, I note that previously this meeting would have still been going for many hours, and I'm told that one of the reasons for that 
is the changed position of Australia. But under Albo's inspired diplomatic stewardship, the whole thing was wrapped up in time for the leaders to sit down to watch the State of Origin Rugby League match from Brisbane that night and post photos of, of themselves having fun on Instagram. The joint communique was emphatic about the relief everyone felt that Australia had stopped being so uncooperative. Quote, leaders welcomed and fully supported Australia's renewed commitment to the forum's climate change priorities. They were also delighted that Australia offered to host a reunion under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in 2024. The deliberations left none of them in doubt about the crisis the region is facing. Quote, Leaders declared that the Pacific is facing a climate emergency that threatens the livelihoods, security and well-being of its people and ecosystems, backed by the latest science and the daily lived realities of Pacific communities. They blamed so-called big emitters for this, in other words, Australia, and said that under something called the Glasgow Dialogue, the big emitters were responsible for averting, minimising and addressing the loss and damage caused by climate change to developing nations. Now, in case you don't speak diplomatic jargonese, that means give us your money. It's alarming that at no point in these meetings was it mentioned that the Pacific Islands are not sinking under rising oceans, but instead in some instances are actually growing. So yes, Albanese and Wong played a smart game at the Pacific Islands Forum, regaining the trust and friendship of our neighbours at a tenuous time in the region. But at what cost? If they pledged specific amounts of money to these leaders, they're not revealing how much. I guess we, the taxpayers funding all this largesse, will find out eventually. Which brings us back home to the domestic agenda. While our Prime Minister and Foreign Minister were busy promising to alleviate climate change in the region, Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen was busy ensuring that voters understood the benefits of transitioning to renewables here. Renewables are more secure, he said, and referring to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, having disrupted global fuel supplies, Bowen said, quote, there is no geostrategic crisis that can impact on the supply of sun to our land and wind to our shores. Well, that's funny. You'd think climate change is the ultimate geostrategic crisis, but yet it is actually increasing the supply of sun to our land. But that aside, what geostrategic crisis could possibly stop us extracting our own coal, gas or oil and using that to fuel our own economy? Bowen didn't say. Instead, he said regarding our transition to renewables, quote, we have to do this. Really? Says who? Not the Australian voters who in 2019 wholeheartedly rejected Labor's climate activism because it would cost too much in government debt and lost jobs, and arguably rejected it again in 2022 when only a third of voters put Labor first on the ballot. Yet Bowen is talking as if there is a consensus about the transition to renewable, renewables. There just isn't. Renewables will cost a fortune and be less reliable. And the voters know it. The Institute of Public Affairs held a survey in March this year asking people how much they would personally be willing to pay per annum for Australia to reduce its emissions by zero to zero by 2050, which is a key part of Labor's renewable strategy. A massive 92% they wouldn't pay more, said they wouldn't pay more 
than a hundred bucks. A hundred bucks. The way inflation is going at the moment, that's not going to buy Albo a poolside banana daiquiri at the next Pacific Island Forum. Eventually, Albanese will have to learn that diplomacy is more about negotiation than buying friends with taxpayers' money. Well, we've heard for weeks, haven't we, about half the government front bench being missing in action, jetting from one international love-in to another. The Prime Minister has been virtually everywhere, Tokyo, Indonesia, Madrid, Paris, and Fiji, where he was joined by not one, but two of his ministerial colleagues. Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles has been to Singapore, India, and the United States. Tanya Plibersek joined her pals at a United Nations Ocean Conference in Portugal, and the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, was in Sri Lanka. What's that got to do with home affairs? But Penny Wong takes the prize. She squeezed in three overseas trips in two months to so many places you'd think she was ACDC on a world tour. We know it's been a long way to the top for these Labor MPs, but they were elected to govern Australia, not prance around the world with their friends on the world stage. Everywhere they go, they hobnob with elitists who are fixated on symbolism and virtue signalling. I mentioned at the start of the show the folly we saw last week from the Pacific Island Forum, where again, Albo was talking non-stop about climate change. But you've got to give credit to these Pacific leaders. They sure know how to shake us down. Their four-part strategy is this. One, bash up on Australia and in particular the coalition governments and say they did nothing about climate change. Two, let China enter through the front door, take a Rolex or two from them, then announce that China plans to build a military base there. Three, wait for reactionary Australian politicians to swoop in and basically double the offer. And finally, four, you and me, the poor mug taxpayer, then pays for it. The joke's on us, but for them, it's genius. Well, speaking of geniuses, one joins me tonight from our Sydney studio, Professor David Flint. I'm sure he has a, a fair bit to say about all this. Professor Flint, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, Fred. Now, Professor Flint, what was your take on Prime Minister Anthony Albanese hugging his Solomon Islands counterpart, Manassas Sogavare, at the Pacific Island Forum last week? Well, there's nothing more than a photo opportunity. In fact, much of these international conferences are photo opportunities. A lot of any decisions to be taken are taken in advance. The bureaucracies and so on get involved and the communiques and so on are written in advance. Little is actually decided at these conferences. And what is important are the photo opportunities and the messages that they send. Well, the, the, I mean, uh, the only thing that's left to do is to ham it up for the cameras, I'd say. Whenever I see two world, two world leaders ostentatiously showing that much affection for each other, I'm sometimes a bit suspicious about what deals they've been making behind the scenes. In this case, it looks like Albo promised a fat wad of our money to Sogavare, don't you think? I think you're absolutely right. The only interesting things in these, uh, these occasions is when the microphones are left on and they pick up something that wasn't intended. For example, the statement by President Obama that uh, he would be going soft after the election when he was speaking to Putin on one occasion. That's when it becomes interesting, but I agree with you. 
These are all rehearsed. They are photo opportunities, and they're meant there to entertain the media so that the media can entertain us. Well, there's nothing, there's nothing more entertaining to the media than climate change. Isn't this just further proof that climate action is just a euphemism for the transfer of wealth, David? I think it is very much so. And uh, it also is very much in the interests of the communist Chinese. Beijing is fascinated by this because Beijing knows they can make all the promises that they want to make. They never honour their promises if it doesn't suit them. Just look at how they promise not to militarise the South China Sea. And uh, they are obviously laughing all the way to the bank as Western countries destroy themselves, particularly our country here, which is so small in terms of uh, emissions, apart from, of course, the politicians who have been emitting enormous amounts over the last few weeks in their international travel. But we're so small, even if we close the whole country down, as the chief scientist admitted on one occasion, we couldn't make any impact whatsoever on the world temperature. And uh, they, the politicians have decided, they're obsessed with this. They've decided that they're going to effectively run the country down. I'm sure they must understand that what they're doing will result in terrible consequences for the country. Well, you're, you're, you're spot on, David. But as always, let's talk about the eco-millionaires back here in Australia. These people are benefiting from government subsidies in renewables. David, investors in these unproven extortionate green schemes are advocating for government policies that will make them richer but the country poorer. Will these people ever admit that they're profiteering from something that ordinary Australians simply can't afford? You're absolutely right. This is not the free market. These are people who are being drones. They are hanging off uh, the, the wealth of the country, the taxpayers' funds of the country. They're profiting is not from business, their profiting is from taking money from the taxpayers of Australia. This will result in an awful, awful calamity for the country if it's allowed to go ahead. We can see that now with what's going to happen to the prices of energy, and it's already happening. We can see how businesses are being paid or encouraged not to use the electricity supply so they can keep it going to the houses and apartments of everybody else so that we, we won't notice that what's happening is what is left of our manufacturing industry is shortly going to disappear, move offshore because the governments are destroying. Well, the, I mean, the sanctimonious green investors are the real villains in this situation for contributing to the destruction of our previously reliable energy industry. Yet these people, they're constantly trying to portray Australia as the worst offender. You wrote a splendid piece in, the week, in this week's Spectator magazine where you correctly highlight that while our politicians are intent on impoverishing our country by pursuing net zero emissions, China, Russia and India are doing nothing. So David, while they, go, they grow stronger, we become weaker, don't we? We do indeed. And you must wonder what our politicians are up to. Some of them we know from what they do after they've been in politics and there were one or two even doing it while they were in politics. They are looking for very well-paid positions with foreign powers, with corporations which come from foreign powers. But it is very difficult to understand how they, in conscience, in good conscience, 
do these things because the intelligent ones must realise that what they are doing is going to lead to a complete disaster in this country. We're going to have such excessive costs that is going to damage what's left of industry in the country, and then they'll move on to agriculture. We, we are really in a difficult position, and they're still prepared to allow the sale of our fossil fuels to those who are preaching to us and saying that we're doing terrible things. Yes, well, meanwhile, China continues to prosper and grow. China, just so our viewers are aware, China is responsible for almost 30% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, and it's rising. Australia, as you say, David, is responsible for about 1%, and that's actually declining. Our politicians like Chris Bowen and Matt Keane, with the support of their respective leaders, are rushing to close coal-fired power stations and have no plans to build a new one. Yet China has over a thousand coal-fired power stations and hundreds more planned. David, is this an act of betrayal by our government? I think it is an act of betrayal and they're even doing worse than the Germans did. The Germans foolishly did what Trump told them not to do. That is, they became even more dependent on the Russians for gas. But at least when they closed down the coal-fired power stations, they didn't blow them up, which is what's happened in Australia. They've closed down the power stations and they've rendered them useless. So that when eventually we realise, politicians realise that they've got to be opened again, they'll have to rebuild them, which is a terrible thing that they've done. Well, they're forcing us into renewable energy, aren't they? This is, we're talking battery storage and all these other green schemes. As you correctly wrote in The Spectator, quote, what journalists should be asking Mr Albanese is, when will his policy for which we are already paying and will pay so much more for far less reliable electricity result in no floods and no droughts? David, if these sagacious politicians know everything about the relationship between energy production and the weather, why can't they explain it to us? It is extraordinary that they can't. The unfortunate thing is that the mass media is not prepared to interrogate them properly on these things. For example, when we had the, the Prime Minister talking about uh, net zero emissions and speaking in the Pacific about climate emergencies and this being the most important issue, why didn't they ask the Prime Minister, why didn't they say to him, well, surely when you're speaking to your Pacific Island colleagues, surely you should be asking them why they aren't protesting about what the, the Chinese government is not doing in the field of, uh, of renewable energy, because the, the communists in China are, as we all know, going heavily into coal-fired power stations. They're doing all the sorts of things. And as you rightly said, they're responsible for almost one third of the emissions of the world. Yet those demonstrators in Sydney who hold up the traffic never, never go to the Chinese consulate or the Chinese embassy. And our governments never complain directly to China. And the Pacific Island nations, which you rightly uh, depicted as uh, waiting to collect more money from us, never complain to the communists in China about their failure to do anything at all about their emissions, if emissions do have this effect on the weather which they are claiming. You're absolutely right, David. Look, the real take-home point here for the viewers is this. 
Whenever you hear a politician, Liberal, Labor, National Party, whenever you hear them talk about net zero emissions, it means policies which will destroy our economy, our freedom and our sovereignty. It means eye-watering debt, shipping jobs off-seas, no air travel except for them, soaring electricity prices and power shortages. But it won't mean turning excessive rainfall to our advantage. David, we've had rainfall for months, right up and down the East Coast, often at flood levels. Will this rain ever be harvested and put to good use? It seems as though it won't, although you go back to well before the Second World War in relation to the Bradfield Plan and soon after the Second World War in relation to the Beale Plan and the Bridges Plan in Western Australia. And Bridges, incidentally, was the first Indigenous minister in Western Australia and he wanted to bring the water down from the north. This country has more than enough water, not only when, the, when it rains heavily on the east coast, as it does regularly, but we have an enormous amount of water in the north and it just needs to be brought down. And the technology is improving all the time to do that. We have well-established, well-prepared plans, right back to Dr Bradfield and Minister Beale and Minister Bridges. They all had plans, very sensible plans. Why aren't we doing anything about it? It's because governments don't attend to the things that they were elected for government. The most important things which relate to this country, that is defence, that is uh, water, that is energy and that is education, on all of them our politicians are failing and failing dismally and you quite rightly raised the question of betrayal. They are betraying the people who elected them and it really is time for Australians to take back their country. David, you're making too much common sense. Thank you for your splendid insights and for joining us here on ADH TV. Thank you. There he is, Professor David Flynn. You might have noticed Italy slipped down the list of the world's least stable democracies last week by averting the sort of political impasse that usually degenerates into a chaotic scramble for power. The Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, lost the support of his parliamentary colleagues, offered to resign, and President Sergio Mattarella rejected it. Instead, senior business leaders and union bosses joined forces to urge him to stay and hold the country together. Well, you couldn't attribute that level of stability to the United States and Britain, where growing instability could have dire consequences for all of us. In the United States, President Joe Biden has gone from supposedly attracting the most votes in US history to being universally loathed even by his own party. Britain is even worse, where Boris Johnson has been toppled during his first time as Prime Minister after winning a massive majority in the House of Commons only three years ago. Johnson was elected with a fairly clear mandate. Get Brexit done, bolster the National Health Service, introduce an Australian-style points-based immigration system and, in Johnson's own words from his election victory speech, quote, Use our technological advances to make this country the cleanest, greenest on earth with the most far-reaching environmental program. Now, economic headwinds created by COVID lockdowns notwithstanding, Johnson was pretty much focused on achieving that when his colleagues decided he had to go. Their rationale was that Boris's popularity had sunk lower than even Joe Biden's at 23%, so his political career was untenable. But was it? 
Johnson's low polls were mostly because of two things. He had partied with his staff during harsh lockdowns his own government had introduced, and he had claimed he never knew about allegations of inappropriate behaviour against his deputy chief whip, Dennis Pincher. So the issues that brought him down were not the issues for which he was elected. If MPs want to depose a Prime Minister, they must first be able to adequately answer two questions. Is the Prime Minister failing in the job the people elected him or her to do? And if so, is there someone else in the party who can get the job done more effectively? Having seen the unedifying and ruthless contest between senior Tory MPs to take Johnson's job, you'd have to say the answer to both questions is no. The favourite in the race, Rishi Sunak, conspicuously had a marketing campaign and support team ready to go soon after Johnson announced he was stepping down. Deciding who takes Johnson's job is a difficult process. Conservative MPs will decide the final two contenders today. Sunak is popular with the MPs and will almost certainly make the cut. The other contender will be either Foreign Secretary Liz Truss or Trade Minister Penny Mordaunt. It then goes to the Conservative Party membership, which is about 200,000 people. Again, Sunak is supposedly popular with them, although yesterday a spanner was thrown in the works when 2,000 members signed a petition asking that Boris Johnson also be placed on the ballot so members have an option to vote for him to continue. But get this, Sunak, who remains the favourite according to British bookmakers, is not so popular in the wider electorate. So how democratic would, would it be if he was foisted on the nation through all this internal politicking? Even more alarming is that Sunak's family has questionable corporate ties to the World Economic Forum's plan to create global digital IDs. And he has been described in the Chinese Global Times as the Chinese Communist Party's favoured contender. These represent dramatic departures from the agenda for which 14 million Britons voted in 2019. Now, there are warning signs here for Australia. Johnson had a clear mandate. Anthony Albanese, not so much. He won only a third of the primary vote in the election this year, and his policies for renewables and net zero risk alienated, alienating large sections of Australian battlers. His honeymoon can't last much longer. The Labor Party factions are not known for their patience when a leader starts to flounder, let alone a leader with a mandate as flimsy as Albanese's. The question is, will his Labor colleagues should they ever start to question his leadership, do so for the good of the nation or to service their own political ambitions? You'd have to hope for the sake of Australia that Albanese can somehow make it to the next election with his leadership intact. Well, each week the great man does his UK report with the political editor of The Express Online, David Maddox. But before we cross to David in London, I saw on his Twitter account earlier that there are wildfires in London just outside his bathroom. Check this out. When I read all this coverage the other day about a heat wave across the UK, I thought it was just a case of the Poms not being able to cope with a bit of excessive sunshine. But it's actually becoming very serious. London Fire Brigade Assistant Commissioner Jonathan Smith 
said some of the fires in the city were the result of tinderbox conditions and said Tuesday evening would be critical in ensuring the fires were kept under control. For the first time, Britain has recorded temperatures of over 40 degrees. British train companies cancelled services and some schools were closed. Flights were suspended at Luton Airport after staff identified a runway defect and the hot weather had melted the runway at the Royal Air Force's Bryce Norton Air Base. Sales of electric fans, hoses, air conditioning units and sprinklers are going through the roof. The London Fire Brigade received more than 1,600 calls yesterday and London Mayor Sadiq Khan has urged Londoners to not light any barbecues, as if you would. So let's cross to David Maddox to get the latest from the UK. David, is that fire near your house still burning? I think it is, but I think it, thankfully it's it's under control. We were, we were definitely heading to the second Great Fire of London at one point yesterday with uh, yeah with uh, blazes right right round the city. It was uh, it was uh, something like out of Apocalypse Now actually um, from uh, where I uh, from where I'm living. But uh, you know we we, we poms we're, we're kind of professionals at complaining about the weather. This may actually be the first time that we've actually got some genuine cause to complain. But there you go. <laughs> well, also the fireproof uh, ratings of your houses. I, I imagine those buildings aren't really designed to withstand fire that often, are they? No, and, and um, in London, you know, people see all these kind of lovely new buildings going up, um, but actually. Uh, an awful lot of the housing is kind of 1930s, 1940s, 50s. It's uh, it, it's really quite dangerous, actually. If 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 a blaze really did kind of uh, get into the housing areas, it, it could be uh, it could be catastrophic. David, are they saying how long this heat wave will last? Uh, apparently, it's going to break near the end of the week. So uh, we're all got our fingers crossed. Actually, quite looking forward to the rain. I mean, obviously, we'll complain about it when it rains, but uh, <laughs> we are we are actually looking forward to uh, getting soaked. So. <laughs> right. And and does this what does this do to train services and public transport? Is public transport still operating? Well, just about. Uh, it's 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 slowed down the trains. They've they've decided to run less trains. There's a bit of a suspicion, actually, that this is being used as a kind of excuse because people don't want to go to work. Um, there, you know, in the end, it's just a hot summer day. Well, and, speaking and of course, that, I, I should say, of course, you know, the usual crowd have been coming out mostly on our broadcast media saying this, of course, is climate change. It's not climate change. It's just a hot summer day, basically. Exactly, yes. And, and as you say, get back to work. Speaking about getting back to work, let's talk about the Conservative Party leadership. <laughs> We've been seeing headlines over here about who will replace Boris Johnson as Conservative leader and ultimately become the next UK Prime Minister. They're saying now that Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has all the momentum to make it to the final two. One thing she has in her favour, she remained loyal to Boris Johnson. She's certainly not the assassin who, in this case, by all accounts, is Rishi Sunak. History, going all the way back to Julius Caesar, tells us that assassins never prosper, David. Certainly none of the assassins of recent Australian political history survive very long. David, is Liz... No, and... Go on, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and generally, you're right. Assassins don't, don't prosper. Liz, Liz Truss has remained loyal to Boris 
throughout. But even she has been a bit, I mean, dare I say it, spineless about defending his legacy and and all the rest of it. Uh, but, you know, people keep forgetting in this country, let alone elsewhere, that the electorate for this is the 100,000 members of the Conservative Party in the end. And most of them don't want Boris to go. Most of them are loyal to Boris. So, you know, Rishi Sunak, uh, who was Chancellor and then resigned dramatically a couple of weeks ago, is uh, is really got a target on his back as far as most of the Conservative Party members are concerned. Well, uh, speaking of, of supporters for these contenders, Liz Truss has some pretty high-profile backers, including Jacob Rees-Mogg. Unlike Rishi Sunak, she's a favourite with everyday voters. She represents the small-state liberal wing of the Conservatives and was one of the only ministers in Cabinet to protest against tax rises. She's tough, too. She seems to be the only one with enough foreign experience to confront someone like Vladimir Putin. But, David... If Liz Truss gets there, can she unify Conservatives and beat Labor? This is a big question, actually. I mean, you know, talk about the heat with the weather. It's, it's, the heat has been really kind of high uh, in the Conservative Party in this last couple of weeks. These guys have been literally ripping each other apart. I mean, in fact, the Labor Party produced a video from the last leaders' debate just of clips of what they were saying about each other just basically tearing the conservative legacy to pieces. It's, uh, it's, it's been all sorts of craziness. I'm not sure anybody can actually unite the Conservative Party. It's so fractious. It's got some real kind of liberals on the left, a lot of whom are coalescing around Penny Mordaunt, who's currently in second place, but looks like she may drop out today. Uh, then we've got Rishi Sunak is very much the establishment candidate, the old Remainer. Even though he voted leave in uh, 2016, he's, he's picked up that kind of establishment uh, vote, you know, the no change, the usual crowd running, uh, running the show, the corporatists. And Liz, who was ironically a, a Remainer back in 2016, is now the champion of Brexit and is uh, picked up all the hard Brexiteer vote, uh, certainly kind of express readers really like her. A lot of the kind of uh, normal natural conservatives. Well, really David, that's like the righteous low tax small state. That's the big part of Boris Johnson's mandate, but the next UK Prime Minister has to deal also with skyrocketing costs of living. I note the unions are preparing to strike in October. The government on Tuesday signed off on wage increases of about five percent for two and a half million mm. public servants. But inflation is running at a four-year high, 40-year high, of more than 9%. And they say the wage increase isn't enough. David, is the UK about to experience the bad old days of the 1970s where there was a wage price spiral? Well, it's already started because we've already had... Uh, I mean, you talked about the trains not running with the hot weather. Actually, they, they were on strike just a few weeks ago and they're planning more strikes over the summer and into September. So they want to bring the kind of network to a halt. Literally just before I um, came onto your program, uh, I was looking at a, a, an announcement from one of the doctors' unions. Uh, I think it's a doctors' association, and they're talking about going on strike as well, which I think is outrageous. Uh, we're actually uh, one of one of the aspects actually of this leadership contest, and one of the reasons a lot of us, a lot of people on the right, would like. Um, Liz trust to win is because she might be the only one who'll bring in some anti-strike legislation. And 
try to prevent some of this uh, nonsense from happening. Well, David, just getting back to Boris Johnson, though, I'm really struggling with the idea that 14 million people voted for him. He won a massive democratic mandate, the biggest parliamentary majority since 1987. Now more than 2,000 Conservative members have written to the party's chairman to demand a vote on whether Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson should carry on as, as leader. David, are these people having buyer's remorse now, having toppled Johnson? Well, this is a disconnect between members of parliament and ordinary voters and actually even Conservative Party members. You know, most of the Conservative Party members and a great deal of voters uh, wanted to keep Boris Johnson. He's in many ways been a great prime minister. He got Brexit done, thank God, after the turmoil of the Theresa May years. You know, he got us through the pandemic. Now, you know, it was a bit too much lockdown for a, a lot of us, but he did better than most, and certainly the vaccine rolled out quickly. And he's united the international community in taking on Russia over Ukraine. You know, he's he's got some big things on his on his CV and uh, and done well. It's been the allegations of corruption and you know rule breaking and the chaos around him that's brought him down. And not uh, you know not underestimate the jealousy within uh, amongst Conservative MPs. I think that I actually think that it's really going to come back and bite them because, frankly, this leadership contest has shown that there isn't a depth of talent waiting to replace him. All the possible options looked worse or lightweight versions of, of Boris. And, uh, you know, it may not even take a couple of years before people are saying, why don't we bring Boris Johnson back? <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I've got a feeling a conference, the Conservative Party conference in October is going to be quite spicy on this on this issue. Well, there's very interesting times ahead for the UK, David. I struggle with the idea of deposing a prime minister who received a huge mandate from the people, a bit like what happened mm. here in Australia with Tony Abbott. It almost never works out well for the party and creates long-lasting divisions, as you say. Anyway, we continue to watch with interest. Thanks for joining me, David. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure as ever. Good to, good to chat, Fred. That's David Maddox, the political editor of The Express Online. You can read his columns by going to the website express.co.uk. Now, in his relationship with North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump brought with him an understanding of the need to adapt when deals don't go as planned. He honed this from decades of high-level real estate negotiations in New York. Kim and his father Kim Jong-il had since 1994 used their nuclear-armed aggression and despotic volatility to their own advantage. But not against Trump. Frustrated by the North Korean relationship not going his way after less than a year in office, Trump played Kim at his own game, threatening to unleash, quote, Fire and fury like the world has never seen. It worked. Kim Jong-un got the message, wound back his missile testing and took his seat at the negotiating table. This led to Trump famously crossing the demilitarized zone, normally one of the most dangerous places in the world, into North Korea. He was the first US president to cross that border since Korea was divided in 1953. Trump did likewise with Russian President Vladimir Putin. He claims to have told Putin that if Russia invaded Ukraine, the US would bomb Moscow. Did he mean it? Maybe not. 
But Putin didn't dare test Trump's resolve. Putin wasn't so cautious when Trump's predecessor, Barack Obama, was in office. He invaded Ukraine in 2014 and took the Crimean Peninsula. And he resumed his aggression even more vigorously as soon as Trump was replaced by the bumbling Joe Biden. These days, hardball negotiating is nothing like it was during Trump's time. Walking out of top-level meetings has become commonplace, but this has more to do with petulance than strategy. Last week, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov attended the G20 meeting in Bali. It was the highest level meeting between Russia and the West since Russia invaded Ukraine. So this was a rare opportunity to strike a deal, even if the likelihood of success was low. Lavrov received an ice-cold reception and was even heckled by delegates who asked him when he would end the war. Afterwards, he said, quote, the West doesn't want talks to take place, but wishes for Ukraine to defeat Russia on the battlefield. He concluded, quote, there is nothing to talk about with the West. Then he left. This is different to Trump's brinkmanship because there was no cost to Russia for walking away and Lavrov suffered no damage at home from Russians who, for deeply entrenched cultural reasons, support the war in Ukraine. In some ways, it was surprising that Lavrov was even in Bali, let alone being prepared to talk to the West. The West had made it clear at the previous G20 meeting in Washington in April that they weren't interested in open dialogue. At that meeting, United States Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen led a walkout of Western diplomats merely because a couple of Russian officials were appearing via video. Her Canadian counterpart, Christian Freeland, was indignant about the Russian presence, saying, quote, the world's democracies will not stand idly by in the face of continued Russian aggression and war crimes. She went on, quote, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine is a grave threat to the global economy. Russia should not be participating or included in these meetings. Where's the diplomacy in that? What was she trying to achieve? other than to look mildly assertive. These people couldn't negotiate a discount on an overpriced secondhand larder, let alone find a path to peace with a nuclear-armed aggressor. Their incompetence is one thing, but the stakes are another. These meetings affect the lives of billions of people. The war in Ukraine has disrupted global food supplies, which had already been decimated by the COVID lockdowns. One United Nations spokesman said, quote, the global price spikes in food, fuel and fertilizers as a result of the crisis in Ukraine threatened to push countries around the world into famine. He went on, quote, the result will be global destabilization, starvation and mass migration on an unprecedented scale. We have to act today to avert this looming catastrophe. Well, the Western negotiators who were in Bali last weekend might sleep easily at night knowing they gave Lavrov a piece of their mind, but they haven't made the world a safer place. In fact, we're now closer to nuclear war than we ever were when Trump was threatening to attack Pyongyang and Moscow. You can't help thinking that if Trump had been in Bali last weekend, the war in Ukraine would be one step closer to ending.
Now, before I go, there's been a predictable resurgence of advice from so-called experts that we should all start wearing masks again to protect us from COVID. Paul Kelly, the nation's chief medical officer, said he had voluntarily started wearing a mask again a week ago. He said, quote, the main issue here is protecting the most vulnerable, but it is also about protecting our health system. Protecting it from what? Most Australians have had COVID by now, and all they did was spend a couple of days in bed eating soup and watching Netflix. There's a flu going around Sydney at the moment that most people wish was COVID because it would probably be milder. Nevertheless, Dr. Kelly says that wearing a mask will, quote, slow the spread. Well, the data disproving this claim is steadily building, and it is a bit more persuasive than Dr. Kelly's platitudes. In the brilliant book Unmasked, American researcher Ian Miller says that the data from Los Angeles, where the mask mandate was strict and compliance was high, quote, raises questions regarding the proclamations from experts and politicians that masks save lives. Miller says there was, quote, no apparent benefit to wearing masks. Worse, if LA were a state, it would have ranked fifth in the United States for COVID mortality rate by July 2021, despite the widespread use of masks. Miller also looked at Japan, where there was already a culture of mask wearing and therefore high rates of compliance. Yet he found that despite the masks, Japan's COVID mortality rate was higher than Pakistan's. Now, Miller says, Japan has the, quote, highest case rate on earth. But Dr. Kelly is not the only person recommending Australians start masking up again. Victorian uh, Deputy Premier Jacinta Allen says she has received advice that kids aged eight and over should wear masks in school, although she graciously conceded that she wouldn't make them compulsory. Well, good luck to any kid defying peer group pressure or the sanctimonious glares from a woke teacher if he or she dares to walk into a classroom unmasked. Some independent schools will impose their own mandates and have already sent a letter to parents saying they, quote, require students from grade four and above to wear a mask indoors unless a health condition requires an exemption. This is not about health. It's about control and instilling in kids a fear of the world against which they feel powerless not unlike the climate catastrophism that our education system has already brainwashed them into believing. They are as vulnerable to COVID as their schools are to being flooded by rising oceans. The schools planning to impose these restrictions should have a look at this, the moment a classroom full of kids is told the masks are coming off. just beautiful. If only more adults felt that way about basic freedoms. Well, that's it from me tonight. It was great to have your company right here on ADH TV. I'm Fred Paul filling in for Alan Jones. Good night.